Welcome to the Fundamental Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Paul Saladino. This podcast is the result of my relentless search to understand and correct the roots of chronic disease and illness. In this podcast, I will share with you everything I have learned about how to live the most healthy and radical life possible. Thanks for joining me on this journey. What is up, you guys? If you have been following my work this last week, you know that I've been on a little philosophical meandering. I sent this out in my newsletter, and I've been talking about the remembering recently. And the idea here is that animal-based diets, the carnivore diet, are really teaching me, teaching all of us something much bigger than diet. They are reminding us that this is a bigger thing than just food. It's about remembering where we have come from as humans, remembering how our ancestors live, remembering our sort of lost identity, remembering what it means to be a true human, a fully alive human who eats the food that a human is supposed to eat, which is, I believe, a nose-to-tail carnivore diet with organ meats. As you guys all know, Heart and Soil is my passion. If you need more organ meats, check us out, heartandsoil.co.co. So get the organ meats in your diet, get the nose-to-tail animal foods, use carbohydrates if you prefer. I do believe our ancestors had them from time to time, and I think physiologically humans do better with that. But beyond that, how are we supposed to live in our entirety? That is what I think we are all searching for, a bigger identity than just a diet. Being a carnivore is not enough. Being part of the remembering is what I really think most of us are looking for. This process, this community, this bigger tribe that transcends borders and is all a group of people who are looking to remember where we have come from as humans, how we eat, how we live, how we hunt, how we move, how we form community, how we are in the natural world, how we share ideas, how we make music and art, and really how we savor this short moment of life that we have And this is just something that I've been super excited about this week is sharing these ideas, casting off the amnesia of the present day. There is so much amnesia today. There is so much forgetting in 2020 of where we are supposed to be as humans, how we are supposed to be living as humans. We've forgotten how to eat. That's, I think, the most important part or the first part that I started with. But we've forgotten how to live. We've forgotten that community is more valuable than entertainment, that we need to be outside in the real sunlight. We can't just take a vitamin D pill, that we need to be in lakes and rivers, that we need wilderness and adventure and laughter, and we need challenging physical exercise. We need to push ourselves from time to time, and we need to be off of digital platforms to connect with humans in a real way. This is the remembering. Welcome to the remembering, my tribe. This is what I've always been wanting to do, and this is what I continue to do in the podcast and with Heart and Soil. If you guys saw us this week, last week we released Firestarter, which is our high stearic acid tallow. It's so exciting to see you all loving it. And Gut and Digestion, which has tripe and intestines, has BPC-157, other nutrients to support digestion in addition to our beef organs and bone marrow and liver, which are the foundational support. We're also going to have Blood Builder and Histamine and Immune coming out in two weeks. We're so excited. If you are interested in what we are doing, check us out, heartandsoil.co, heartandsoil.co. This is really where I am putting all of my effort this right now, you guys. You can email me, Dr. Paul, drpaul at heartandsoil.co with questions. 
I spend a significant amount of time answering your questions. I'd love to hear what you're asking about. A lot of people are asking about histamine, which is why we are releasing histamine and immune. I talked about it this week in the newsletter. What causes histamine intolerance? It's all in there, all of my thoughts. In a nutshell, I think a lot of it is copper deficiency because we're not getting enough organs, which brings us back to nose to tail. So I think if you are deficient in copper, a beef organ supplement, bone marrow and liver are going to be hugely beneficial. Kidney has diamine oxidase, which will help with histamine intolerance. That is in our beef organs and definitely in our histamine and immune supplement. And Blood Builder is the only supplement on the market with blood extract in addition to spleen and liver. So, so many cool things happening with Heart and Soil. Check us out. Send me an email if you have questions. Welcome to The Remembering. This is where we reclaim our ancestral birthright to radical health and vitality. It's really something that resonates with me deeply. Let me know if it resonates with you. I can't wait to hear you. Tell me about it. This week on the podcast, I'm excited to share with you my conversation with Karen Martell. She's a nutrition coach. She helps women with weight loss, thinks about it from a hormonal perspective. This is one of those podcasts where we didn't see eye to eye all the time, but that's kind of fun. And we shared our different perspectives. I think for a lot of women, Karen would use herbs or other supplements, and that's just not how I practice or think about things. I want to know what the root cause is. I respect Karen's experience greatly, and I really enjoyed this conversation. In the beginning of the conversation, you'll hear us really dig into the hormonal cycle for women, how that might affect food choices, when to eat carbs, maybe when it might be easier to fast or go low-carb for women if you want to do that, and when you might want to exercise hard versus take it easy. And then we get into lots of conversations about weight loss, which are relevant to both men and women. So men, I know you have women in your life, and you'll probably want to understand the mysterious workings of them better. Don't, Don't skip this podcast. And there's a lot in here on how to lose weight for both men and women. We talk about linoleic acid, stearic acid, nutrients, nutrient density, all the good stuff, and a lot of Karen's experience too, which I think is common for many women as well as men. So enjoy this one with Karen Martell. I am so grateful for my sponsors. Bel Campo is sponsoring the podcast again. I so appreciate them. Belcampo.com, B-E-L-C-A-M-P-O. The Good Country. This is an amazing regenerative farm in Northern California. I so love what they are doing. If you watch my stories on Instagram, I'm getting stew meat from them. I'm getting ribeyes. I'm getting suet. I'm getting liver. I'm getting heart. They are an incredible group of people. Anya Fernald has been on the podcast in the past. They are doing amazing work in Northern California doing regenerative agriculture. This is the argument against uh, plant-based diets. This is how we regenerate the earth. This is how we put carbon back into the earth. They are leading the way here as well as other farms that I support. So check them out, belcampo.com. Use the code CARNIVOREMD for 20% off your order. You can get stew meat for less than $8 a pound. It's my favorite meat. It's affordable. It has collagen. I mix it with bone broth. I eat liver and heart, and I'm good to go. I'll get some carbohydrates in there because I've been feeling better with them, less toxic carbohydrates, but that is my diet, and most of it is from Belcampo these days, you guys. I'm super appreciative of them, and they are making amazingly good food. Please check them out, support our sponsors, and your family will thank you. They are making amazing good stuff. I also want to thank Blue Blocks, B-L-U-B-L-O-X. These are my buddies in Australia doing just about what I think are absolutely the best blue light blocking glasses on the market. They do the most science of anyone I've seen with their lenses to ensure they block the green and the blue wavelengths to really help with circadian rhythm maintenance in the midst of this crazy world because we are in the amnestic world. We are in the forgotten world. This is one of the things that is important. Not forgetting, remembering that blue light at night is not good for humans. Be in the sun in the day, but forget it at night. These help us live in the present day 
and remember a little bit of this. They make some amazing styles. I like the Jasper. They've also got some other really cool stuff. They have a sleep mask, which is amazing, and they have light bulbs. They sent me some of these light bulbs. They have blue light um, sort of sparing bulbs. They have a red bulb called the Lumi and a sleep mask called the Remedy, and I love their light bulbs. And they just came out with a red light device, which has the lowest EMF of any that I'm aware of and no flicker. So check them out, blueblocks.com, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. The red light device is called the Hive, and it is super interesting. I love red light when I can't get in the sun enough. It helps me sort of hack the sun a little bit. The sun is amazing. If you can't get it enough, get some red light. This one is really cool, no flicker, very low EMF on this little device. They did a great job with this thing. I love them, B-L-U-B-L-O-X, Carnivore MD gets you 15% off, Blue Blocks. White Oak Pastures, I mean, these are my homies for sure. When you guys hear this podcast, for the most part, I'm going to be in Georgia at Bluffton doing some photography, doing some preparations for the cookbook. I'll be hanging out. Watch my stories on Instagram, whiteoakpastures.com. These are the OGs, you guys. Jenny and Will Harris, you know, farming this farm for 20 years, regenerative, raising the carbon in the soil, sequestering rainwater, preventing runoff. The meat is amazing. They treat their animals well. They have goat and lamb and beef and chicken and pork. They are now making soy and corn-free chicken. And we are there. They did that because I asked them to, and I thought that was so cool. So they have soy and corn-free chicken, and they're going to keep doing that if you guys enjoy that. So if you are interested in soy and corn-free chicken, check them out, whiteoakpastures.com. I love their stew meat. I love the tenderloin tips and tails, the bones, the suet. They have tons of organs. Carnivore MD will get you 10% off your first order. These are good people, whiteoakpastures.com. Also, always have to give a shout out to my homies, Nutrisense.io. I love continuous glucose monitors and how they change the landscape of how we are metabolically healthy. Guess what? My dad is wearing one. I can't wait to show his results on a recent, on an upcoming podcast, and I'm excited to see what kind of behavior change it helps him do. I think CGMs are the key to behavior change for so many of us, and I love the people at Force of Nature Meets, forceofnature.com, yet another regenerative farming system, making organ grinds, ground beef, venison, bison, elk, all kinds of good stuff. It's hard to get other places. Check them out, forceofnature.com. All right, you guys, if you appreciate this podcast, please leave me a review on iTunes. Please, please. I'm gonna start doing giveaways, I think, with like signed book copies. So stay open, stay aware on Instagram for that. I'm gonna give away signed book copies if you leave me a review for my podcast. So in the next month, that is the month of October, and let's just start it now in September. From this week on, I'm gonna take four weeks. If you leave me a review on iTunes, which will probably be 100 or 200 people, I will give away four signed copies of my book. Leave me a review on iTunes if you appreciate this podcast. I will send you a signed copy of my book. I will even customize it for you. This is how we reach so many more people. So thank you for supporting the podcast. Listen, After Ford is going on with me. Karen Martell, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Mr. Saladino. It's going to be a fun (laughs) one. You know, I have a growing fan base who are women. And the topics that we're going to discuss today are relevant to both women and men. And, you know, I've done a couple of podcasts in the past with Dr. Jamie Seaman, who's an OBGYN, talking about ketogenic diets and women's hormones. And at the end of that podcast, we started to get into perimenopausal stuff and we didn't have time. And I've gotten so many requests, like, please do a podcast on more women's hormones, do a podcast on perimenopause. 
And I've done a podcast with L. Russ on thyroid, and I recently released a second episode with L. Russ on thyroid. So if people are interested in those podcasts, they can go back and look at them. But I'm excited to expand this portion of the Fundamental Health Podcast Library and share your story to talk about weight loss, which is relevant to both men and women. And I'm sure that a lot of women out there are loved by many men and other women. And so it's relevant to all of us as well. So this will be a great one. But let's just start with a little bit about you because you have a really interesting story in terms of your weight loss, your mm -hmm. sort of health journey with your diet. Why don't we start there? Tell me about your history with diet and weight loss and how mm -hmm. that brings it all to the forefront for us today. Yeah. And before I get started, I was actually thinking about the fact that, you know, half your clients, half your listeners are male. And I was thinking, you know, but men should know this. Like we're going to talk a lot about the women's side of things, but if a man can know this information about his partner, I tell you, it makes their life much easier as well because they understand what's happening in their partner's bodies. So I really think that men should be listening to this podcast <laughs> episode. And because we're going to talk about weight loss today, I'm going to throw in some stuff that's relevant to weight loss for both sexes. Yes. And it's things I've been talking about a lot, a lot about recently as well. So it, it will cover both, but I, I know that the men listening to this will, many of them will have women that they care about in their life and will be able to pass this podcast there or use this yes. podcast to help understand that better. So it'll be valuable for mm -hmm. everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so my start story started um, when I had my daughter uh, when I was 31. And, you know, lost all the baby weight after I had her and, you know, was everything was fine. And then about a year after I finished breastfeeding, I suddenly started to gain weight. And I've always been health conscious and, uh, you know, knew how to eat. So I thought back then, uh, you know, low fat, <laughs> lots of grains. Um, but I just continued to gain weight and I didn't have a sugar addiction. So I wasn't somebody that was, you know, pounding back the cake and the McDonald's at night, you know, or anything like that. Like I really was eating whole foods, watching my caloric intake, and I only continued to gain weight. I started to work out harder than I'd ever worked out. I got a personal trainer. I was doing a CrossFit type workout four or five days a week, like doing everything right. And I started to explore different diets thinking, okay, maybe it's the diet. So I, you know, I did the whole raw vegan thing. And then I went to, I went on the opposite of the extreme and did Adkins diet. I did the zone diet. I started juicing. I started detoxing. Like I tried everything under the sun and my body only continued to gain weight. And here I was working out with these, all these women, my age were doing the exact same workout. I knew I was eating way better than all of them and they're shredded and they look amazing. And here I am fattest I'd ever been with the, you know, puffy face, really bloated stomach. Like at the end of the day, I looked like I was pregnant. Um, I started getting like severe, severe migraine headaches for, you know, half the month. I, was tired. I was just, I was a little depressed. I'm like, what is happening? And, you know, went to the doctor. Of course, no doctor is going to say, well, you're 32 or 33, whatever I was at the time. They're not going to say, hey, it's let's look at your hormones or anything like that. It was exercise more, uh, eat less. That's what I got everywhere I turned was that. And I finally was just like, I was at the heaviest I'd ever been. And I thought, what? There's something else going on. I've always been a big researcher. I've always been in the health industry. So I thought, okay, 
I've got to figure this out on my own. And the only thing that I could think of was it had to be hormonal because I had all of this like really severe PMS and these uh, hormonal migraines. And I knew that there was going to be a hormone piece in there. So I actually found a naturopath that would test my hormones at that, at that age, which I just think most women at 33 years old do not think, Hey, I've got hormone dysfunction. And the hormones came back that I was estrogen dominant. I had no progesterone. My cortisol was super low. My DHEA was super low. And here I was like working out like crazy, which is probably the worst thing you can do when you've got low cortisol and low DHEA. And so I had to do this complete turnaround with, okay, I need to do something different. And at the same time that when I went to get those results, I was talking to my naturopath and he said, I just was at this anti-aging conference. And he said, they say, this is when nobody had heard ever of ketogenic diets. And he's like, apparently a ketogenic diet is the best diet for weight loss and anti-aging. And I was like, what the hell is that? (laughs) In all my time and all my diets, I hadn't heard of that. And I went home, started Googling, found uh, Mark's Daily Apple, bought the Primal Blueprint, started that. And within a month, I was like, this is it. This is the diet for me. And my blood sugar stabilized, my bloating went away. I just felt so much better and felt like, hey, this is so easy. This is the diet for me. But I never lost a pound of weight from changing my diet to paleo. And I've gone keto, I've been close to carnivore. None of those things ever helped me to actually lose weight. I felt so much better. And I still follow a paleo, keto kind of carb cycling diet still to this day. And we can talk about that. But the point was, I couldn't diet my way out of the hormone dysfunction. And I still can't to this day. Uh, You know, now looking back 12 years later, I'm four, I think that's right, 44 now. And going through perimenopause and having to now look at my hormones once again and watch that my hormones from age 41 to 42 completely dropped off. And when I was going full on into menopause at 42 years old, like I've always had this predisposition for hormone dysfunction. I've got genetic predisposition for it. And I just think that nowadays what we're seeing, both men and women, but especially women, we are in an epidemic of hormone dysfunction. And we can talk about when we kind of start, you know, I want to give you the kind of a map of what starts to happen in the female body as they age. But basically, I had to get my hormones in check. I had to stop doing all of the the CrossFit workouts. I started doing nothing but yoga for a year. I started to meditate, started to take some uh, really important supplements at that time to reboot my system and to support the adrenal system. Uh, Years later, I found out I was also hypothyroid. So I had to deal with that and heavy metals and So it was all this kind of combination of things that had to come together in order for me to finally let go of the weight. And I really think that so many women out there, we tend to always go for the diet because it's easiest, really. It's like, just change the diet and you'll lose weight. But we're seeing this growing number of women that that's not enough. There's too much going on right now in our environment that is affecting the hormonal system. And for men too. I mean, that's what we said at the beginning of the podcast. Like if men are having trouble losing weight, it can be 
related to all these factors as well. So I think that when this podcast comes out, I will have released the second podcast I did with Al Russ, which is entirely about thyroid stuff. And what we talked about in that podcast was the, the vast number of connections with the thyroid. And yeah. really that was a detailed dive into how to evaluate the thyroid, how to think about thyroid stuff. And it's interesting for me to hear you say within that case history that your thyroid was also problematic. So let's just, can we unpack that story a little bit? There's yeah. a few questions I have in there for you and I don't know the answer, but I'll be curious to hear. And mm -hmm. that'll hopefully help people understand what you're, what we're describing in the situation. So mm -hmm. you were in your early thirties, previously healthy, had a baby and then had trouble losing the weight. And when the hormones were tested, your practitioner said you were estrogen dominant. Now, what did that look like on your hormones? So in, in my personal case, my progesterone was, too, was low for where it should be at that age, but also the estrogen was a bit too high. So estrogen dominant can be two different things. It can be that it is too much in relation to your progesterone levels, or it can mean that even though you have normal progesterone, the estrogen is too high in comparison to that progesterone. They need, they work in tandem together and too much is not good, too little is not good. You want the right amount of both in order to have homeostasis in the system. Now, at what point in your cycle were you checking estrogen and progesterone? You always need to check it on days 19, 20, and 21, which your MD will never tell you that. So I always tell women, if you're going to go get serum blood work done, and we can talk about the best ways to test this, you want to make sure you're on days 19, 20, or 21 of your cycle, because that is when progesterone should be at its highest. Right. So if you don't, you could walk into your doc, you could go to your doctor, say, listen, I want to, I think I've got hormone dysfunction, hormone imbalance test my estrogen and progesterone. And they'll just, oh yeah, here you go. Here's the wreck, go and get it done. And let's say you just finished your period. Well, guess what? You're not producing progesterone at that time. So it'll look like you have no progesterone and it'll look like you have high estrogen. So you're gonna get a misread on that. And, and doctors will never tell you this. So you need to make sure you do it 19, 20 or 21st day of your cycle. Now, I think most women listening to this podcast will have seen diagrams of women's hormonal cycles, but maybe we should just unpack that a little bit. Um, and I'm going to pull one up here on the YouTube video to show people listening. This will also be instructive for men who are, who are listening to this podcast or watching it. Um, so let's talk about the menstrual cycle and the phases real quickly and break this down for people. And I'll break it up an image and maybe you can, you can walk us through it and we can talk about this. Mm -hmm. So where do we start the menstrual cycle? Like what do we call day one, for instance? Oh, day one is the first day of your period. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. And let's walk us through it from there. So we have, we have the follicular phase, the luteal phase, the hormones yeah. change. So, yeah. So in the, in the beginning of your cycle at the, you know, day one hormones are at their lowest point, both estradiol and progesterone and even testosterone are very low on day one. As we start to go through the cycle. Oh yeah, that's great. <laughs> As you start to go through your cycle, as you can see, the estrogen starts to peak in the first 14 days, right before ovulation, progesterone starts to come up. And so this, at this point, men that are listening, 
this is when women want to have sex. (laughs) (laughs) This is my husband always tells me, thank goodness you told me this. (laughs) (laughs) There are times where you can go and get it much easier than other times. And this is one of them. Biologically, this is when our hormones are at their peak. We feel sexy. We have lots of energy. First half of the cycle, women, that you're, when your estrogen's rising, you're actually more insulin sensitive. So this is a great time to take advantage of that. Um, it's a great time to work out because you have lots of energy in that first half of the cycle because of that estrogen. Um, you can take advantage of being able to lose weight. Fasting more is really important in the beginning half of that cycle. So following more, even like carnivore-based diet, doing lots, you know, maybe some longer fasts in there, really easy to do in that first half of the cycle. And then you see day 14, we ovulate. This is when our body says we can get pregnant. This is when it we want men to come in. (laughs) This is a good time to have sex for women. You're more lubricated. You feel sexier. It's a really great time for that. And then as we start to go towards now the follicular phase, phase, luteal phase, which is the second half of the cycle from days 14 to 28. Now things you know, the estrogen starts to dip, as you can see that we have a quite a bit of a dip afterwards, after we ovulate, um, progesterone starts to come down, and then it goes up. And that's, you see on the day 21, that is when it's the highest. And that's why you want to test at that time, because what we're seeing in women, and this is almost like across the board, there's very few women that I see that have really healthy levels of progesterone during that time. And what we start to see is that estrogen becomes too high in balance to that progesterone. So the progesterone is what we're seeing. So what you see in this one, which is a healthy, what should be happening, the progesterone's at its highest, and then the estrogen is below. But what we're seeing is an opposite of that. The estrogen's too high and progesterone's too low during days 19, 20, and 21. So that second half of the cycle, when the progesterone is being produced, is when you it becomes a little bit harder to fast. You start to crave carbohydrates at that time because your serotonin levels dip. So your body, if you can listen to the body, and we can talk about kind of how to eat to your cycle, uh, you become more insulin resistant in that second half of your cycle because of that progesterone, but you, but it's the time where you want to become more introverted. You want to do some more yoga, not so much of the, you know, CrossFit type stuff, um, eat more of the, you know, paleo-based carbohydrates, if you're not carnivore, maybe if you're carnivore, you'd want to maybe put in like more of the raw honey at that time, maybe some yogurt, like playing yogurt with some raw honey, but just putting, that's a great time to put the carbs in when your body is craving them, because there's a reason for that. In the luteal phase. In the luteal phase. So I'll just walk you through this one more time. So if you're looking, if you're watching on YouTube, this blue line is estrogen. As we said, it goes up. It peaks around ovulation, then it drops off. It has a little bump in the luteal phase. Uh, This is the follicular phase here, the beginning part. Then uh, progesterone is the purple line. It's kind of low, 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 low. And in the luteal phase, progesterone rises. This 
is part of the signal sort of to, to stimulate the corpus luteum and to prepare the uterus and do all those other good things. So there's two other lines on this graphic if you're watching on YouTube, they are FSH and LH, uh, follicle stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone. And you can see that both FSH and LH are gonna have a spike right here around ovulation with the estrogen spike. And in fact, that's part of it. There's a feedback loop happening there. So if you are checking FSH and LH, you're gonna look for the spike right before ovulation, but otherwise you're kind of looking at these basal levels of S F FSH and LH. One of the things that we look for is when people are in perimenopause, when women are in perimenopause, we'll start to see FSH and LH rise. And that's part of the signal that there is less ovulatory reserve, less mm -hmm. reserve in terms of the egg. Sort yeah, of your body's trying to pump it out so that you can ovulate, right? Yeah. Because you, yeah. you start to ovulate less and less. So this is what we're talking about. And so I, I like this characterization that if you're going to get your hormones checked and you're concerned about what's colloquially been termed estrogen dominance, you do want to do it in this phase that's 19 to 21 days, as Karen is saying, and you're looking for a lower estrogen relative to the progesterone. If you're not seeing that, we might call that estrogen dominance. Now, there are a lot of reasons that people can be estrogen dominant, mm -hmm. and this gets to be a little bit confusing. One of those reasons is insulin resistance and or, as I've started saying in this podcast, I don't like that wording. I think it's very, very misleading what I prefer to say is metabolic dysfunction. So when this was happening to you, and I don't know if your doctors did this, did they check any of the markers of metabolic functioning for you? Did they check fasting insulin? Did anyone look at your blood sugars? Do you know how insulin, I don't like, and I don't like to say insulin sensitive, but do you know how insulin sensitive slash metabolically healthy you were at that time? Was there any indication of that to kind of put this nobody, estrogen no, dominance? Nobody tested that then. I mean, I test mm -hmm. it now, of course, right? And always keep watch of that. And I have my clients do it just to see because you're right, it goes hand in hand. So no, nobody did, but I can tell you that I wasn't. I, I've always had really great blood sugars, really great hemoglobin A1C. I've never had any sort of those other, my cholesterol has been great. Like I had none of those things. So uh, the estrogen, it was, you know, I had endometriosis. And so I just, I, I had high estrogen, but I didn't have any of the other stuff with it. Mm, interesting. So, yeah. but we didn't test, so we don't know for sure. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I would have, I would have had my fasting blood glucose tested, I think regularly back then. Right. Um, yeah, I think so. But yeah, no, I kind of gave up on doctors. So I, I yeah. at that point for a long time, but no, nobody did test. So you're right. I could have. If we could go back in a time machine, I would have loved to have checked your fasting insulin and have seen a continuous glucose monitor. I yeah. think that uh, a, a postprandial glucose on a continuous glucose monitor will will not lie. Uh, and you can yeah. see in those glucose patterns, and I'll, I've done a whole podcast on the continuous glucose monitor. You guys listening to this probably all know this. Through NutriSense, I wore one. I'm going to put another one on. There's a couple behind me here in the frame. Um, but I'm going to show some CGMs later that, that show what my blood glucose looked like when I wore it and contrast it to someone who's been on a ketogenic diet for a long time. But that's a foreshadowing for later in this podcast. But I'm very curious. I would have really been interested to see what was going on with your glucose tolerance at that time. And, mm -hmm. and I wonder if there was some underlying metabolic dysfunction that people were not 
tapping into. Um, and then the other thing I would have loved to have seen then would have been a DEXA scan or an MRI to see how much visceral adipose you had. One of the things I've been talking about recently on the podcast is this contrast between subcutaneous adipose and visceral adipose. And visceral adipose is the amount of fat around the organs. Um, it's within the peritoneum. And subcutaneous is the fat you can kind of pinch on your belly. So it's one of the things that's quite fascinating about this is that visceral adipose tissue appears to grow the most rapidly in response to metabolic dysfunction. And I will unpack that more in future podcasts. You guys know there's a podcast with Brad Marshall coming up probably a week after this one in which we talk about linoleic acid, polyunsaturated fats, how they affect um, our tissues. But because the visceral adipose tissue appears to be so sensitive to growth in response to those things, I wonder when there's hyperinsulinemia, the visceral adipose appears to grow most rapidly. And that's why I think we see it elevated in people when they have that testing. So those would have been really helpful, I think, to tease this apart. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I do have, like, I have all of my clients and members in my groups always they have to test not just their their estrogen progesterone all the hormones but i have them do those blood sugar markers as well because they do tend to go hand in hand but not all the time paul not all the time i have seen a ton of women who have really healthy blood glucose and hemoglobin a1c and uh, they still have that really high estrogen low progesterone markers and that's why the visceral adipose tissue i think becomes interesting because this is the way I think about this, that what is happening when we're eating too much of this polyunsaturated fat, especially the linoleic acid, is it's giving this signal to the visceral adipose to grow. And people have, we talked a little bit about this on the podcast that we did for your podcast, mm -hmm. which I hope people will listen to because I thought we had a great conversation on Karen's podcast. So listen to Karen and I talk on her podcast, guys. But linoleic acid appears to open this door to the visceral adipose tissue, allowing it to grow. And so while the visceral adipose and the subcutaneous adipose is growing, the glucose markers can look normal. Right. It's like pe people are, they look like they're, they're essentially insulin sensitive until they're not. As the visceral adipose is growing and growing and growing, this is why this is so misleading for people that, that if there's too much of this disordered signaling, I think a lot of it's related to linoleic acid, that the fat tissue just grows and grows and grows. And when that happens, your blood glucose is going to be fine. And so it's fine, it's fine, it's fine until those adipocytes get overly distended. And then you start to see the frank metabolic dysfunction, you know, in a just per, pervasively throughout the body. So it's just mm -hmm. an interesting case. And I wish we had a time machine. Can I'm just you kind of test, speculating. Can, how, what's the best test to test the lin linoleic acid? Uh, you can like just, just do. You can omega do, 3, omega 6. Uh, you can do an omega 3, omega 6 ratio. You can do blood or RBC levels of omega-3, omega-6. But that was my next question for you, and this may be very difficult to do in a dietary recall, is you know, at that time in your life, leading up to that pregnancy and that pregnancy, any sense of, and I'm just kind of guessing here, right? This is my hypothesis. Clearly there's some, there's some bias driving these questions. Uh, you know, how much linoleic acid did you have in your diet and how much stearic acid did you have in your diet? Any sense of those things? Most people don't know about stearic acid unless you were eating cacao butter or suet. Most people don't have any stearic acid in their diet other than animal fat, the kind that's vilified. But can yeah. you go back and think about this and, and think, were there any sources of vegetable oil in your diet at that time? Oh, that yeah. Okay. I, had it, I had it in my cupboard and, you know, I grew up on, okay. with a mother that was 
demonized all fat. Like it was low fat, everything. We drank skim milk. We ate margarine, canola oil. That's what I grew up on. hundred percent. Yeah. It was terrible. So I was eating things like my mom was a fitness fanatic health person. Right. But of course back then that they had it all wrong. And so I always had my diet for so long consisted of whole grains because I thought that's what, you know, so I had my whole grain pasta, my rice, my cereal that was like cereal. I can't even believe I used to eat cereal, (laughs) but that's, you know, that's what I was taught. And so it was low, you know, maybe some chicken, some like low fat proteins and grain based diet for sure. And definitely, it sounds like there was a history of when you were eating fat, it was vegetable oil. Yes. So that would have been so interesting to go back and look at those markers. Yeah, but I was still low fat. So I wasn't eating a lot of it, but I was low fat. Low fat, mostly vegetable oil when it was fat. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So that's that's super (laughs) fascinating. And and, I think what we're seeing here is this really interesting connection potentially between what we eat and our hormones and and, and in ways that these can be affected. Again, this is just my personal bias hypothesis, but I think it's fascinating to kind of recreate that story. So Mm -hmm. you've worked with a lot of women who have had this, who have had this sort of condition of like weight loss resistance. I think that, you know, my suspicion is that a lot of this is going on. What else do you see as causes of weight loss resistance in these women that you work with? Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of this is going to translate to men too. Yes. And even in my own story, like looking back on my history, I think I've always been very, very sensitive to hormones. My mom put me on birth control pill at 16 Mm. for my periods. And I got violently, violently ill. If I didn't take my pill at the exact same time every day, I would vomit. And I gained 20 pounds in a year. And I got very depressed, felt like I was losing my mind. And nobody, not my doctor, not my mom thought ever that it was the birth control pill that was caused, that suddenly was causing this change in my body and my mind. And I went off of it and the weight dropped within two months. I lost all the weight and went completely back to normal again. So I never touched birth control after that, you know, and I then had a very hard life of partying in my twenties and I worked in nightclubs that where I was up till like three, four o'clock in the morning, every single night drinking, doing drugs. Like I, even though I was oddly health conscious at the time, like during the day I was health conscious of what I was eating and was really always very interested in health. But then I had this nightlife, like these two different personalities where I would then go out and party all night. And I did this for like 10 years. It's all in. And I really think I just destroyed the system. I destroyed my nervous system. And then putting a baby on top of all that. And I was a single mom and I was running my own business and thinking this is normal. This is what everybody's doing. I didn't consider myself a stressed out person at all. And so I think, you know, I've been sober now for 12 years and I, but I still think I am feeling the repercussions of what I did to my system back then. I I think there is a piece of that. I also discovered, and this is um, a reason for weight loss resistance um, and hormone dysfunction in women, to answer your question there, is heavy metal toxicity. 
That's a huge one. Heavy metals will actually clog up your receptors. So your body looks like it has normal levels of, of hormones, but they're, your body's unable to utilize them. Things like mercury. I personally had mercury in my system as well as like off the charts lead. And so I think that when I was pregnant, your bones soften lead is stored in the bones mm -hmm. and it leaches out of the system. And I think that that is what triggered the thyroid issue, the weight, a lot of the weight stuff, the cortisol issues. Like I think that there was that, that pregnancy. And I hear this a lot is, and you probably do too, is it seems to happen after pregnancy. It's like things just don't quite go back to normal yeah. again. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and it happens. And I think that that could have something to do with it. So I think between our environmental toxins, which are massive for both men and women, we have so much estrogen mimicking substances in our environment that is massive. So you'll see that causing the estrogen dominance. But then things like cortisol, high cortisol, if you're running on high like I was, partying, working in nightclubs, and then pregnant, single mother, running my own business, that cortisol that's constantly getting shot up, and of course my crossfitting that I was doing and all that stuff too, that steals away from your progesterone level. So we're seeing, this is not uncommon, this is every woman in North America right now right? That is having these cortisol problems, that's having this environmental toxic load. And so it's just, if we don't do something about it, it's going to get scary. This is already scary. It is really scary. And, and I think it can happen to men and women as well. Um, and you, you've just kind of hinted at a couple of things that I want to talk to people about that I have not spoken about much on the podcast before. So the first is the heavy metals. So let's talk about the heavy metals and then let's talk about progesterone steel because that reminds me that I've never really spoken about progesterone steel um, on the podcast before. So where do you think you got exposed to that much lead and mercury? So lead is the most common place to get lead is from houses that were built before the 1970s because the pipes, the joists were made out of lead, the, mm -hmm. the water pipes. I did grow up in very old houses. So that is the, mm. I think maybe that's where I got it from. <laughs> mercury is most commonly found, of course, in uh, mercury fillings, silver fillings. Which I never had a single filling in my life, though. I've never had a filling and I had moderate levels of mercury in my body. So one of the other ways you can get heavy metal toxicity is actually from your mom through the placenta, you get about 50% of her load you're born with. And my mom was full of mercury. So I could have, the lead could have come from that. It could have come from lead paint on the walls. There was um, leaded gasoline back then. It's, it can be in the ground. I really don't know. I've checked my current environment because they were so high. They, uh, you're supposed to be below three, the top of the charts, 33. And I was past that. Really? Really. And it's so weird. I'm like, where? Like I checked all of my water. I checked everything in because it said you may have current exposure because this is so high. That is a massive amount of lead. I recently did. I recently did my blood work. I'm going to do a whole blood work podcast. I did a Nutri eval through Genova and my serum heavy metals came back and nothing is high. My lead level was 1.1, which is fine. Mm -hmm. it's but you can't test it through blood. Well, unless you have current exposure. 
Well, see, I would disagree with that. I think that there is going to be some in the blood. You can do provocation, but the problem with provocation is there's no standardization. And then people, I think that if people have levels of lead or mercury or arsenic that are problematic, you're going to see it in the blood. I see it in my clients in the blood all the time. I think blood is actually pretty good for these. You, you can't really tell what's stored in the bones too well, but you can do a provocation. But then again, if you do a provocation with DMSA or DMSO or EDTA, you're not, there's no way to standardize that. So no, they do say that like something like 90% of all provocation tests come back positive for some well, heavy exactly because, because you're, you, you're pushing it out. So it doesn't give you a really accurate way of looking at it. No. I mean, my standard has been to just look at it in the blood, at least for mercury. And I mean, for these things, I think that you'll see it in kids. I mean, if kids have exposure and they're storing it, it'll still leach out somewhat. I think you'll see I, it. Enough. I kind of disagree. Though. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do because I've been, I've been on this for many years. So now. What do you think? How would you check the lead? So, I mean, that obviously, even though it was, I did a, a provocation. So what that means is you take a chelator, a true mm-hmm. chelator, DMSA, EDTA, or DMPS are all true chelators. So you get an IV chelation, then you measure, yeah, you, or you can do oral, and then you pee in a jar for six hours, and they test your pee for heavy metals. And so what those chelators do is they draw it out of the system so you can get an accurate, so they say, accurate reading of what's in the system. But that can show that there's too much than a, of what actually is in your body. Blood apparently shows any sort of current exposure. Like if you just if you eat a lot of tuna or any sort of fish that has lots of heavy metals in it, you'll see it in the blood as well as the hair shaft. So another way to test is the not the hair shaft, the hair is a hair mineral analysis test, and that's when they test the hair for mercury and other heavy metals and the thing with that is once again mercury for instance stores mostly in your brain and you can't get in there to see what's actually coming out and so it doesn't come out in the hair but what you can do and this is from andy cutler do you know andy cutler's protocol are you familiar with it no so he's got one of the most popular, there's a couple of very, you know, mainstream popular heavy metal detoxifications system protocols. Andy Cutler is passed now, but he created a system to safely chelate heavy metals into the body. Anyway, so he specifies that the hair mineral analysis is actually probably your best bet, but you have to look at the minerals because the heavy metals won't always come out of into the hair unless there's current exposure and it's in the blood. So if you look at the minerals and there's certain ways of telling, okay, if there's certain derangement in the minerals, that tells you whether or not you're mercury toxic. Hmm. And lead, the best way for lead is by provocation because it does store in the bones. Mercury, you can do blood, but you can also do hair, Um, or provocation. So there's different tests. Like ideally you kind of want to do all three if you can afford to do it. And then bottom line though, here's the thing. If you suspect and your tests come up that you don't have any heavy metals and any, any three of these tests, still the best way is to actually do rounds of chelation, proper rounds of chelation, which I'm not going to get into how to do that, but, and see how you feel. Because if you've got heavy metals and you go do a round of chelation, you don't feel well. And it, that's your, yeah, that is your sign that you've got heavy metals. That's the best way to tell. Hmm. Okay. 
So I'll just add my thoughts on that. I don't okay. totally agree with. <laughs> we, <laughs> we, do, we have different perspectives on this. Agree to yeah, disagree. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we have different perspectives on this. So. I, I think that the problem I have with provoked heavy metals is that it makes it quite complex for people. And when you try and we don't have any standard for what the provocation levels are going to be. If you look at the test from doctor's data or anywhere else, the, they'll, they'll overlay the, the non-provoked um, reference range. They'll, they'll overlay the, the, the provoked levels on the non-provoked reference range. We don't have a reference range for provoked lead. We don't know. So I've done provoked tests on people in the past. I've done provoked levels on myself. And that's why I just do serum levels in, in myself. And I actually don't know that I've seen compelling data that hair mineral analysis or hair heavy metal analysis is that accurate. My concern here is just that a lot of people get pulled into these like deep protocols. And there's a lot of people, you know, kind of saying like, hey, you you need more of this and you, you're, you get people get in these really complex heavy metal protocols. I just like to simplify it for people. I think if you know that you've been exposed to lead or mercury, then get it tested. And the majority of people I've worked with, they'll see it in the serum. If you have heavy metals that are causing a problem, I think you're going to see it in the serum and you can see it in something like a Genova NutriEval. I'll show mine guys. I'm going to do a, a whole podcast on my blood work, but, um, this, uh, this is my uh, heavy metal analysis. You can see here's my elemental markers over here. And then this, my lead is at 1.1, no mercury, a little arsenic, a little cadmium, a little tin. So there's really no heavy metals. Uh, this, I'd love to see this lead even lower, but it's not high at all. And I've definitely seen the lead higher than that in the past on myself. Um, I've seen it as high as like six or something. So um, for a number of years ago, but there's really no lead here right now. Um, and these are here and you can see the elements, which I'll talk about in a previous podcast, but, but that I can't think, test what's in the bone and what's in the brain. Yeah. But I'm not sure there's really a good way to test what's in the brain. There <laughs> you know? isn't a way. There yeah. Isn't. It's, but I think mm. it's the best test we have, um, honestly. And cause I mean, if you wanted to do this, you could overlay, um, you could overlay a serum with a provoked, like if I, I would start with yes. a serum and if serum looks funny, you could do a provoked, but just realize the reference ranges on a provoked mean essentially nothing. You don't know what is normal on a provoked. And I think everyone on a provoked is going to go high. So if you're not, if you haven't seen a lot of provoked heavy metal testing, you don't even know what the reference range is. And I'll tell you that like when I have tested people with provoked, almost everyone is going to be outside of the reference range. You're going to have a lead that's more than six or eight when you provoke it. So how do you know when to do heavy metal detoxification and should you be doing that? Because generally speaking, the other thing about heavy metal detoxification is that, you know, our bodies can handle this. We've been exposed to this, you know, evolutionarily in soils and things. And that's what we have glutathione in our detoxification system for. We know that there are multiple heavy metals that can be excreted in the sweat that can be excreted by just sauna or yes. more gentle methods. And so I just get a little worried. I'm, I'm very cautious before I would recommend formal chelation to someone. And most of the time now I would recommend against it, like DMSA, EDTA, DMSO. I don't, I, don't, I just, I get, I get concerned because those chelators, much like other molecules that chelate minerals in our body are going to pull out all kinds of good things too. So be very careful if you go down those rabbit holes. There's other ways to do it. I think that the best way to detoxify from heavy metals is just to, or the, the best starting point is to make sure you're getting the right nutrients in your diet, eating nose to tail, eating an ancestral diet, getting all the cofactors your body needs to make glutathione and all the other 
things in your body in the phase one and phase two detoxification systems to detoxify metals. We have a system to do this, to get rid of these things. And so that I think is the way to start with some heat and, you know, some normal life environmental hormesis, you can sweat out a number of heavy metals, not all of them. This is the work of Stephen Genuis, but some of them do show up in the sweat at a higher level than the serum. And so that's generally how I think about starting. And then there are some much gentler products like citrus pectin. Oh my God, it's a yeah. plant product, but citrus pectin has been shown, you know, like the, the keto carnivore zealots are coming for me. I know yeah, they yeah, are. Yeah. They're going to bang down my door any day now. Uh, you can yeah, do citrus pectin to start, but maybe we'll yeah. do a whole separate podcast sometime on heavy metals, but I just wanted yeah. to offer my, my thoughts as a, you know, and I don't, a, yeah. I don't go down that road, Paul, unless necessary. Like yeah. we have a system now because it could just simply like hormone dysfunction doesn't have to be from something that serious. Heavy metal, dis I mean, hormonal dysfunction can be from so many different, it could just be because you're stressed out because, you know, you're, you're not eating right, whatever it is, because you're aging, just simply aging is going to deplete your hormones. And we can get into that. But I look at those things when I'm seeing like when to giving bioidentical hormones and supplements and, and doing some lifestyle modifications and dietary modifications, if those things don't work and that person is still suffering and has a number of other weird health problems going on, I have just this checklist. It's like, okay, start knocking these things off, like check for mold, mycotoxins, check for um, heavy metals, wh whichever, you know, there's many, like we discussed, there's many ways to do this, but you start kind of going through these other things that could be causing the problems. And you can, I would suggest having Dr. Pompa on your, Dan Pompa on your show. Sure. He's great. And he, I mean, he talks about his own journey of uh, going through, and he, he went through the Andy Cutler protocol, which is uh, probably the safest way to detox heavy metals. Cause you're right. Some of these protocols are not great for your system. Like uh, going to a naturopathic doctor and doing IV chelation is one of the worst things that you can do because they basically load your system up with these chelators. Your body releases all of these heavy metals and then they get whatever you don't pee out, your body reabsorbs and you can, people get really sick from it. So there's a very safe way to do it. And if it's something that some, one of your listeners is going, you know, I've had mercury feelings or whatever, or have this kind of weird issues happening. I don't seem to be getting better then for sure. It's something to explore. I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I also kind of like I talk about in my book and in general, I think that there needs to be a hierarchy. And um, I think that you have to correct the, the most fundamental things first. Uh, that's the name of my podcast, right? So I think that to, to look at heavy metals without looking at diet and linoleic acid and um, insulin sensitivity and metabolic dysfunction is to put the cart before the horse in a lot of people. And that's just what I fear, that people are just jumping to that. And so often I have seen people, you know, go down, get caught in like the web yes. of like excess heavy metal detox or these really intricately infinite labyrinths of quote mold toxicity when all they really mm -hmm. had was metabolic dysfunction because no one was correcting their diet. Yep. And, and I think that, you know, I've talked about this a lot of times with other colleagues. I'm, I'm certainly not a mold expert, but I really feel like, and I don't want this to be a podcast on mold toxicity, but I think we are all exposed to mold. And I believe there is probably some genetic predisposition in some people that makes them more susceptible to mold. But everywhere you go in this world, there is going to be mold. And if, if you 
are feeling like your main issue is mold, then really please just make sure that everything else is totally in line. Yep. Make sure you know your diet is on point. Make sure that you are thinking about linoleic acid. Make sure you're looking at your metabolic health and make sure you're checking your gut first. Because I think a lot of people have issues that have been labeled as mold toxicity and they're actually underlying GI issues related to dietary things that might be solved by doing a more ancestral diet. There's a lot of people I think who have dysbiosis in the gut and, and that is causing all sorts of problems and it's related to lectins from beans or other yes. toxic plant foods. And, and this has never been addressed because they're, they're seeing a plant-based provider or so they're just not putting things in the right order. Mm -hmm. And when I'm thinking about a client that I work with, you know, I'm going to think about hormones and um, metals, but I actually think of hormones usually in response. Hormones are sort of, they're being conducted by other things in the body. I, I think very few people have primary hormone problems unless you have an adenoma, which is secreting, you know, exactly. cortisol, unless yeah. you have Cushing's disease or a primary, like an insulin secreting adenoma or something. A lot of times the hormones can be this, this check engine light, but they're, I to, I, I'm just very careful about how I think about them in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. They're often an indication that something else is wrong yes. and, and we need to, we need to play with them, but they're, they're very rarely, in my opinion, the primary cause of the problem. There's yeah. things underlying them. And, and similarly, I think mold is very far down on my list as is Lyme. Um, I yeah. do think they occur and, and as are heavy metals. I think that the, the incidence of these issues is, is more rare than, than it's made out to be, but we're getting into sort of mm -hmm. philosophical yeah. observational. And I, I totally agree. And I, and that is, I think you're right. There's like a, a system and you have to go, you have to, dietary is number one. You got to fit, you got to change that first and foremost. And then it's like, you, like I said before, you start taking, you know, you start getting these foundational things set in place. And the women and men that I'm talking to right now are the ones that they have tried it all, right? They have, they've been following paleo carnivore keto diet for years and yet they still have you know they've done, tried all the supplements they've and they still don't feel well yeah. then i say okay now you have to start digging a little bit farther to see if there's something else maybe amiss inside the system yeah and i think that's important and then going back to what you're just saying there about hormones and it's it's usually something else that's causing the hormone imbalance. So let's just talk about kind of a timeline here of what's what what I'm seeing in my practice and what's happening out there. When you're in your 30s, like I was when I was 33 and I had this hormone dysfunction, a lot of that was lifestyle. Like I said, it was from my past. I think it could be from the lead, who knows? But I could fix that with lifestyle modifications, with diet, with, um, you know, well, not so much diet, but I did feel better with the diet. Um, I didn't lose the weight, but I felt way better. But with supplements, you know, lowering my, um, healing the cortisol problems, I got much better. I lost the weight. It was great. And that's in your 30s. In your 20s and 30s, if you have hormone dysfunction, if you've got PCOS, estrogen dominance, low progesterone, there's so many amazing things that you can do to fix that, that don't involve hormones, that you that is, there's a root cause to it and you can change your diet and your lifestyle and things can get better. Now, when a woman hits about 38, and it's a very exact age, because <laughs> this is when I see it happening the most, at 38, something starts to happen. And it's usually that progesterone starts to drop. And this is when women will just suddenly, and, and men too, I'm sure, but women, specifically, you just suddenly 
you know, you put on a couple pounds when you stayed the same weight for years and suddenly it's like, oh, I've gained a couple pounds. So you start working out harder, eating better, watching what you eat, but the weight doesn't go away. And that's usually the first sign. It's just a couple of pounds of weight that wasn't there before. And then the PMS starts to maybe not, it's not anymore three to four days. Now it's a week, two weeks before your period comes, you're having PMS symptoms. Your libido starts to drop. And then, you know, this, this is now we're hit, heading into our early 40s. Now, this is not, of course, every woman across the board. Some it starts later, some women it starts much earlier even. But this is a generalization that this is what I see over and over and over again in about 80% of my female clients. Early 40s, the libido starts to drop, weight comes on even more. You might have, start having night sweats, you, you just moody, anxiety, depression. The three top things I hear is weight gain, anxiety and depression, and drop in libido in the, in your, in the early 40s. And at this point, most women still don't think something's wrong with my hormones. They think I got a, it's a, you know, okay, I'm getting older, but they don't put it together because we were told that this shouldn't be happening until we hit our fifties. Perimenopause is not supposed to happen until your late forties, early fifties. And it's starting earlier and earlier in women. Mm -hmm. And if you can catch it, the earlier you can catch it, the better. And at this point, when you're in your 40s, there are some amazing supplements, once again, that you can take to help these things. But the bottom line is your ovaries just stop producing these hormones. And there's only one way you can fix that. And you can't diet your way out of it and you can't supplement your way out of it. It's strictly, you got to replace the hormones. So you believe in like a bioidentical replacement type of- Absolutely. Okay, yep. so we can get yep. into that. Um, before we do that, I want to make sure we cover some other stuff before we move on here. So we talked a little bit about the weight loss stuff. This is a trial that I actually showed on my Instagram recently. It's a fascinating trial and it looks at um, macronutrient distribution in, uh, it's a six month trial done in the People's Republic of China. They took uh, 307 people. And the only thing they changed in these people's diets, they were young and they had a BMI less than 28 years old. They were less than 28. They were 18 to 35 years old. So they were not um, fat. They were, they were slim, young men and women. Uh, it was a six month study. It was a controlled feeding study. They controlled everything about the diets. They gave these people the exact same calories they had the people in the study do a dietary recall prior to get a sense of their baseline caloric needs. And then these people were given three meals a day for six months. Everything these people ate was controlled in the trial. And if you see here on YouTube, you can see the differences. For men, there was a baseline of 2,100 calories. For women, there was a baseline of 1,700 calories. As we'll see later in the study, both groups lost weight. All the groups lost weight, suggesting that everybody was underestimating the amount of calories they were eating prior to the study. But we'll see some very interesting trends in who lost the most weight based on the interventions. So these, all these diets were isocaloric. There was a low-fat, high-carb diet, a medium-fat, medium-carb diet, and a high-fat, low-carb diet. And I'm sure everyone listening to this is like, I know what's going to come out the best, but you're going to be surprised. Because the thing that they changed in all these diets was the amount of fat relative mm -hmm. to the amount of carbohydrate. But they didn't put in, in my opinion, good fat. They put in, in your mom's opinion, good fat, yeah. which is they put in, they put in soybean oil. So oh. you can see here, 
in the low fat, this is an amazing study in the low fat, high carb group, there was 20% fat in the medium fat, medium carb groups, there was 30% fat. And in the high fat, low carb group, there was 40% fat, meaning the, the, meaning the high fat, low carb group had twice as much fat, the majority of which was supplemented with soybean oil. So you could think that the guys in the high fat group had potentially twice as much uh, soybean oil or more. We're talking massive amounts of linoleic acid. Soybean oil is approximately 50 to 60% linoleic acid. So that's the only thing they changed. Protein was the same. Remember, all groups are isocaloric between men and women. Dietary fiber is the change, is the same. There's no changes. And you see here on YouTube very clearly that the group that lost the most weight was the low-fat, high-carb diet. So the guys that had the lowest amount of soybean oil, the guys and girls, the lowest amount of soybean oil had the most significant decrease in the waist circumference and the most significant decrease in body weight change. Now, the least body weight lost, high fat, low carb, because this is a high fat, high soybean oil diet. Now, they didn't look at hormones, but I'm willing to bet that, that eventually these people, as they, you know, all of the diets are, are caloric deficit, but what's happening here is that if these were not a caloric deficit, this soybean oil is preventing weight loss. It is keeping those adipocytes open. It is not allowing people to lose weight in the same way. This is a very, very striking study that speaks volumes yeah. about the problems with polyunsaturated fats. So anytime someone has trouble losing weight, I'm thinking about this study, which is actually from 2017 and saying, hmm, how much linoleic acid is in your diet? Now, the other piece of this equation, of course, is stearic acid. And anyone that listens to my podcast knows I've been thinking about this a whole lot recently. It's very cool stuff. Stearic acid is a saturated fat that appears to have the complete opposite effect on our fat cells, which is why I asked you earlier, how much stearic acid was in your, yeah. you know? But I would really love for you to do this experiment with your clients to, to yeah, really get a sense and have them do a dietary recall and say, how much linoleic acid is in your diet? how much stearic acid is in your diet. And if you can shift that ratio, it would be an interesting sort of hypothesis test to say, is that going to affect things positively? I suspect it probably would. Um, just looking at the linoleic acid. And so the story here is, is not that linoleic acid immediately makes us metabolically dysfunctional. It's that it allows those fat cells to stay fat or to grow. And that eventually, eventually, long-term, that leads to major, major problems. And therein lies the problem, kind of like we said earlier, that, that the blood glucose and the markers can look good until they look bad. And, and there's a deeper thing going on here, I think is what people are missing. So that's fascinating. Yeah. The thing you mentioned was pregnenolone or progesterone steel. Um, and this is the steroid hormonal pathway. Um, do you want to talk to us a little bit about progesterone steel? Yeah, there is, there's controversy about whether or not it's actually yeah. a steel. <laughs> but basically, progesterone is a building block for cortisol. So the theory is, like I said, some say it's not true, but um, there is an element to truth to it, no matter what, is the more cortisol you're putting out, the more it's going to sap those progesterone levels. So they call it the progesterone steal because the progesterone is being stolen to make your cortisol because cortisol, without cortisol, we die. So it's, a, it's going to be favored amongst all of those other hormones that progesterone is a building block for. It's going to prefer cortisol. So if you're running on high all the time and you're stressed out, your progesterone is going to get sapped and it's going to be lower. And we see low progesterone in 
so many, like so, so many women. It's, it's, I don't know if I've ever seen normal levels, to be honest, of where they should be. Yeah. Especially as we age. Yeah. It's interesting. And I just want to show you guys on this, this, um, this synthesis pathway for hormones. I've spoken about this in the past frequently with regard to LDL cholesterol. Here's vitamin B5, pantothenic acid. Where do we get this? Animal meat and organs. <laughs> like the importance of eating nose to tail is involved in this pathway. Acetyl-CoA is one of the sort of the building blocks of dietary fats. It's used to make ketones, but it's also used to make cholesterol. And what is cholesterol packaged into? LDL. And what does LDL do? Oh, it delivers cholesterol to make pregnenolone. So all the people that are trying to tell us that LDL causes heart disease, I just at a very basic level, obviously there are much more nuanced conversations about this. I'll be releasing a podcast in the future with Nadir Ali, in which we talk about this in more detail. And I've done at least six podcasts on LDL in the past, guys, if you have questions, that LDL is going to deliver this cholesterol to make all these good hormones, whether it's progesterone, aldosterone, cortisol, testosterone, DHEA, estradiol, um, any of these hormones come from cholesterol, which moves in LDL. So LDL is trying to kill you until, oh, wait a minute, LDL isn't actually trying to kill you at all. Yeah. I swear, Paul, that the low-fat era that my mom was so into destroyed our hormones. Absolutely. We we had no building blocks to make hormones because we had no cholesterol. (laughs) Well, and you know, the, the good thing is that our liver can make cholesterol, but the real problem lies when you start putting in a statin or, you know, something that blocks the cholesterol synthesis pathway by blocking HMG coA reductase. Or, or you push LDL so low with something like a PCSK9 inhibitor that there's no LDL moving around your body or it's gone so low that you just can't make your hormones. And if anyone looks mm-hmm. at the side effects. And again, I will talk about PCSK9 inhibitors in an upcoming podcast with Nadir Ali. But I I mean, if you guys are questioning this, and again, we're all over the place in this podcast, but super fascinating stuff, in my opinion, to know about, like there are some incredibly, I would just say, concerning trials about the risks associated with PCSK9 inhibitors. So for instance, um, PCSK9 inhibitors are the, the real, the real like they're hailed as the best thing since sliced bread, you know, but you can look at studies like this, serious adverse events and deaths in PCSK9 inhibitor trials. And there's a systemic review here and it's just a striking, um, striking conclusion. So this is a, a meta-analysis and I'm going to read you guys this. Our meta-analysis of clinical events registered on clinicaltrials.gov did not show that PCSK9 inhibitors improve cardiovascular health. Uh, Evolocumab, it's their monoclonal antibodies, increased the risk of all-cause mortality. And there are tons of other problems with these things. They have all kinds of other side effects. They're increasing the risk of all-cause mortality if you completely block PCSK9. For those who aren't familiar with PCSK9, it's a molecule in the cell that has is involved in the recycling of the LDL receptor. And it, it, has, it kind of signals when the LDL receptor should be endocytosed. So basically when you have a PCSK9 inhibitor, um, the LDL receptors stay, there are, much more, there are many more LDL receptors and that pulls a lot more LDL out of the blood. So blood levels of LDL go way down. Oh, and they also don't affect cardiovascular health and they also lead to an increased all-cause mortality. But I bet you, you will all hear about PCSK9 inhibitors like Repatha in the near future because they are hailed as the savior of our hearts and they're going to kill you. Anyway. So is that a statin then? 
No, no, it's different. It's a completely okay. different mechanism. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a different mechanism. So statins okay. inhibit HMG coA reductase, but mm-hmm. PSK9 inhibitors affect the recycling of the LDL receptor. And all of these have other bad side effects. If you guys have read my book, you know that I'm all about the side effects and whether the risks outweigh the benefits. And in the case mm-hmm. of plant toxins, in the case of PCSK9 inhibitors, they clearly do not. So anyway, aside yeah. over, let's talk a little bit about- Well, just I'm going to just, just before we move on to go back to the whole progesterone steel thing yeah. too, as we age, uh, we become more sensitive to cortisol. Now, when our ovaries stop making the progesterone and estrogen, our adrenals actually start to make a small amount of it. What happens though, is if you're highly stressed out, your body is going to be pumping out this cortisol and it's going to overtake what little amount of progesterone and estradiol that the adrenal glands should be making. So it makes your perimenopause much worse. If you are stressed out, it can exasperate all of the symptoms because the adrenal system takes over the production of those hormones. And so it all kind of like just the house of cards falls, Yeah, falls apart. Yeah. I'll just share this one, how PCSK9 inhibitors work. You can see plasma, LDL binding to the LDL receptor, PCSK9 at the membrane, pulling the LDL receptor into the cell, kind of endocytosing, and then the LDL receptor gets degraded. The PCSK9 inhibitor is a monoclonal antibody. It's this little red thing. The fact that it's in red should indicate to you that it should not be there. It prevents recycling of the LDL receptor. There are more LDL receptors on the surface of the cell that bind LDL, they get into cytos and they pull more LDL in. So um, the PCSK9 is basically there to, um, to, to be involved in that process. And it does result in increased uptake of the LDL receptor, LDL cholesterol by the LDL receptor um, when you have the PCSK9 inhibitor, but that doesn't look like a very good thing long-term. Like so many things, if we completely mess with our biology, um, humans die more, imagine that. Uh, I don't know when the pharmaceutical companies will learn this. So let's talk about low-carb diets because I think this ties into cortisol and stress a little bit. I've done a number of podcasts in defense of low-carb diets in the past. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people listening to my podcast get very confused, or at least on social media. Same same with mine. Don't worry. (laughs) They can't. a lot of people on social media can't understand that there are nuances to conversations. They, I think that they imagine like, wait a minute, you've done podcasts defending ketogenic diets. Now you're saying they're bad. It's like, okay, let's be very clear about the position here, you guys. And I'll be interested in your position on low carb diets for women and cycling. But I think that low carbohydrate diets are fantastic in the setting of insulin resistance, which is again, the worst word, metabolic dysfunction, low carbohydrate diets can be very helpful for people. They are very helpful because they remove the the fire. They remove the logs that are feeding the fire. In the podcast that we did, I likened metabolic dysfunction to a stove, a wood-burning stove. Linoleic acid is holding the door open. Saturated fats like stearic acid kind of shut the door to the the wood-burning stove and the logs going on the fire are like carbohydrates. Well, if linoleic acid is holding the door open, you don't want to be throwing logs on the fire unless you want to burn the house down, right? This is a bad situation in which you don't want that, that thing to get too hot. It's the raging fire of metabolic dysfunction. But, you know, you want to shut the door and, and then, you know, then the carbohydrates won't fuel the fire. They won't go into the thing, into the wood-burning stove. But I think that we need to discuss the nuances of low-carb diets and how they might be different for men and women and how they might be problematic because you ran into some problems with low-carb diets, didn't you? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And I, like you, like I, I was all about paleo and then I was sure. all about, I got on the keto train hard and it was like everybody I was seeing was going on keto diets and I was had keto programs. I still have keto meal plans that I membership programs and keto program programs on my website. Love it. I utilize it. And it was about a probably two years into utilizing these, the ketogenic diet that I started to see a repetitive pattern just come over and over and over again, which was weight loss happened in the first three months, three to six months. It was like, depending on how heavy the person was, they would lose all of this weight and all of their markers would get better. And they felt amazing and energy and clear head and all the benefits of a ketogenic diet. And then as time went on, it was like across the board, people stopped losing weight. And then uh, some women would get other problems, hair loss, didn't feel well, you know, no energy going, okay, what's going on here? Why have I plateaued with my weight loss? What's going on? And the response that they would get from any keto, and still to this day, any keto forum, any carnivore forum is you're eating too many carbs, cut down farther, start intermittent fasting more longer, go do a five-day fast. And so these women are going and doing these things and still not losing the weight, going, what's going on? And this worked so well in the beginning. Why isn't it working anymore? And so I had to change my stance on it all and realize that, you know what? Some women, they can do great and they can go this, go keto and carnivore their entire life and thrive. But there is a group of women that don't. And we're seeing this. And men. and men too. Yes, absolutely. And I, and it comes down to look at how many women right now, let's go back to that, like the North, this t- typical North American w- woman or man right now, we do tend to be highly stressed. We have a lot of just environmental stress. Some people deal with it better than others. Women don't deal with stress as well as men do, uh, just our makeup. Or hormonal makeup. We just don't deal with it as well. We also are seeing women, a lot of women, as Elle has pointed out, with hypothyroidism. So in, in most cases, women are not being treated properly for their hypothyroidism, as Elle probably shared with that, that with you as well. So we have these women that are under-medicated or undiagnosed thyroid issues. They've got high cortisol, always adrenal issues always go hand in hand with thyroid problems. And they're going into these low carb diets and fasting, which we all know fasting is a stressor. It it does it and it can be a healthy stressor, but it can also be a detriment if you do not have the proper hormonal makeup to do that at this time. So using low carb diets to reverse insulin resistance. If you've got PCOS, you've got high testosterone, high estrogen levels, great. Carnivore keto is going to be amazing. And it's going to probably be the like total game changer. But if you've done this and you're still not losing the weight and you don't feel well, just don't hold on to it. Because we tend to do that. We tend to think, but, 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 but it worked so well in the beginning. This is so great. Why does, why does this woman beside me on, or on Instagram, she's shredded. She's been doing carnivore for 10 years and she's shredded and she looks amazing and feels amazing. Why can't I look like that? 
And it's just simply some people just can't do as well on those diets. And you have to be careful. Sometimes if you can get hormonally optimized, figure out, you know, bring down the inflammation, then you can move in and out. I really think that that's like, if I was to pick a diet for every person, and I've now switched this now in my membership group. I used to offer keto. I used to offer paleo and an autoimmune paleo. Now I offer one meal plan and it's, and I call it the hormone and metabolic reboot plan because it's, it's taking into account a woman's hormones when she's in her 40s and 50s, which you have to be careful. You have to go into a caloric deficit in order to lose the weight. You need to have the fasting in there, but you don't want to damage the adrenal system and you don't want to drive down the thyroid either. So it's about coming in and out, either cycling in a month, cycling seasonally, cycling throughout the week, but taking your body in and out so it has to adapt to what you're doing is gonna be prime for weight loss because your body will always adapt to what you're doing. So you always wanna be changing it up. As well, you want to be able to tolerate carbs if you can. If you're not Paul Saladino and you can tolerate eating vegetables or carbs, it is a good idea to be able to eat them without gaining weight. You well, I want eat carbohydrates. to get to that point. I eat you carbohydrates, do. I just don't eat vegetables. You just don't eat vegetables. Because there's no, no point to that. Yeah, <laughs> no. <laughs> There's no point in any vegetables, so let's be honest. But I want to comment. I don't want to interrupt you, but I want to comment on some things you're saying. Yeah. Anything else you were going to complete that thought with? No, no, go ahead. Go okay, ahead. so I think that um, I want to clarify something you said. I actually don't believe that removing carbs fixes metabolic dysfunction. Um, I think it's a Band-Aid. Um, if, if, so let's go back to the sort of analogy of the wood-burning stove. And in this case, a wood-burning stove is a bad thing. You're, you're in a house, it's already way too hot, and the fire in the wood-burning stove is, is making you just very uncomfortable. This is metabolic dysfunction. Now, linoleic acid is opening the door, stearic acid is closing the door. Carbohydrates are wood going into the wood-burning stove, okay? Now, in this case, um, if you stop, the, the problem is the fire in the stove, right? And the problem is that the stove is lit. Now, the analogy breaks down a little bit because if you stop throwing wood in there, eventually the fire will burn out. But this is a wood-burning stove that keeps burning as long as the door is open, right? There's like a pilot light. There's always going to be some flame in there. So stopping to put the wood on the fire isn't going to fix metabolic dysfunction in this case, which is where the analogy breaks down a little bit. What can I say, guys? I just made it up on the spot. I'm just doing this extemporaneously, <laughs> right? I'll come up with a better one. But you get the idea. I think that biochemically, it doesn't fix the underlying problem because it didn't cause the problem. If you're going to fix a problem, you can only fix the problem by correcting what caused it, not by correcting something that is downstream, right? So you can't fix one of these downstream sequelae and say, I've fixed the problem. So removing carbohydrates in the setting of metabolic dysfunction doesn't fix the metabolic dysfunction because in a lot of people, if you add the carbohydrates back in, they become metabolically broken again. Yep. In order for that model to work, you have to assume or you have to accept that carbohydrates cause it in the first place, which they don't. They don't cause de novo metabolic dysfunction in people who are otherwise metabolically healthy. I'm going to have Ben Beekman on the podcast. We'll have a friendly debate about this. Unless you are literally mainlining sugar 24 hours a day, you're not really going to get, I think, functional levels of insulin-induced insulin resistance 
to the point that you become metabolically broken from hyperinsulinemia. I think the hyperinsulinemia is often caused by something else. And it's caused by this linoleic acid driven over distension of adipocytes. So what is the root cause? It's the door. The door is what's the problem. You don't want to keep the door open uh, to the stove. You want to shut the stove so that you can still have carbohydrates and they won't fuel the fire. So removing carbs will result in clinical improvement, in my opinion, but it did not cause the problem. If you have that wood-burning stove open and there's no fire burning in there and you throw wood in it, nothing happens, okay? Nothing happens. If you have the door open and you throw carbs in and there's no fire, nothing happens. So, or if the door is, you know, you guys get the idea. Like you have to have a spark. And I think that there's a real important distinction here. What does this look like clinically for people? It means that in those people who are metabolically broken, if you have an elevated fasting insulin, if you've worn a CGM and you've seen some postprandial uh, insulin resistance that looks like postprandial glucose that will not lower, and I'm going to show you guys some CGMs in a moment, then you can pretty much say like you are you have metabolic dysfunction. Lowering carbohydrates will be great in the short term, but as 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 you know, Karen is saying, it doesn't work long term because it's not the root of the problem. And you will run into problems. Women invariably will run into problems. I can't say invariably. There are women out there who claim that they're doing fine. But the majority of women that I have seen and worked with will run into problems eventually with this. Um, Personally, I had palpitations. I had muscle cramps. Doing low-carb long-term doesn't work for humans. There is a way to do it. I definitely think we should be in ketosis. We should be low-carb. We should be flipping back and forth between an mTOR and an AMP kinase-based metabolism on a daily or weekly or monthly basis, but to do it long-term doesn't make sense. I was recently in Montana, there were some thimbleberries in your, and I was thinking anyone in their right mind is going to eat those thimbleberries. And you know what? I reached out and I ate a thimbleberry. So <gasps> I know, right? Well, are you dogmatic? <laughs> anyone in this podcast is like losing their mind right now. Yeah, I ate totally. a thimbleberry and I, and I ate a wild huckleberry. You know what? I got two of them and that was all I got on the whole hike. And I probably got four thimbleberries and I didn't die and I didn't become fat and I didn't become metabolically broken, you guys. Did but you get diarrhea? I did not. <laughs> okay. Not from one, maybe Not from, from four, more, but... you know. <laughs> but this is the idea that, that I love that this is, I love that more and more people are beginning to realize this, especially for women because of the hormonal cycle mm-hmm. that we talked about in the beginning. And I want to dig more into this before we wrap up, um, that, that I think that there's a lot of wisdom in women thinking about changing their diet, periodizing their diet in terms of uh, follicular and luteal phases. And um, I think that like we talked about in the very beginning, women are going to feel different in the beginning of their cycle versus the end of their cycle. And there are going to be times in their cycle when they may want to work out harder and when they may want to do more fasting or may want to do more time-restricted eating or be lower carb and times in their cycle when they want to be higher carb and, and do the reverse. And that I think starts to really integrate this. Now, men, men may have hormonal cycles as well, who knows, but I think for men, it's more of a macro perspective. Like if you are thriving on a purely ketogenic diet, then more power to you guys. But if you are having trouble with muscle cramps, lower libido, weight loss stalling, or palpitations, realize that including carbohydrates in your diet is not the end of the world. And it's especially not the end of the world when you understand what is actually causing the problem. Yeah. And this is, I think, yeah. where people feel like it fails. I saw an article recently yeah. saying that we could define metabolic dysfunction as something that gets better when you remove carbs. And I thought, I disagree with that completely. That The totally. definition of metabolic dysfunction is much more nuanced than just something that gets better when you remove carbs. Okay. 100%. I've been oh. ranting a lot No, I really appreciate I apologize. that you said <laughs> that though, because I, I'm on a mission 
to change this because we have begun, become so afraid of carbohydrates and it's ruining women's hormonal systems. Like I'm, I see it over and over again. Like, yes, there's research and papers that will prove it, but there's also research papers that will prove otherwise. So you really, you really have to just take what does your body, what's your body telling you? Quit listening to all the noise out there that's telling you, you know, well, you need to lower those carbs more and fast longer. Yeah. Keto, ketosis was a backup source of fuel. Like it, it was meant for if we were in a famine and there was not a lot of food, food around, our bodies had to be able to burn ketones for energy. Backup. And so what, what are you telling your brain? What are you telling your hormonal system when you're eating one to two meals a day, which would maybe be what, seven, 800 calories that you're, and you're doing this every single day and no carbs. And so your adrenaline's running high, your cortisol's running high every day, and you're in a caloric deficit and you're not eating enough. What does that tell your what does that tell your body? It says do not get pregnant, lower your hormones, lower your metabolic rate because we cannot get pregnant right now because we can't sustain a baby. And I think that's totally reasonable. I I agree with that. There are some articles I've found if you really get into the weeds on this to suggest that in the beginning of a ketogenic diet cortisol rises and sympathetic hormones can rise and they tend to plateau long term. Um, but, but I do think this is an evolutionary signal to our body. Like, Hey, you might not want to get pregnant right now, or for men too, like you might not want to do, you know, too much chasing of girls right now. Maybe you should just go chase some food, um, Mm -hmm. instead of, and, but I think that, but on the flip side, I just want to make it very clear that both of us agree that having periods like this in our life was very beneficial for us. And there are so many benefits. It's just, it's powerful medicine. It gets overused in my opinion. And there's too much dogma in the community. People can't see the forest for the trees and understand that this is a tool and you can't use a hammer on everything. Sometimes yeah. you need a screwdriver, sometimes you need a drill, but you can't use a hammer for everything. And keto's a hammer, but everything is not a nail, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. before we wrap up, let's talk a little bit about how you might structure a woman's diet over the course of her, of her menstrual cycle. And then I'll give a sense of how I might recommend to a guy to structure their diet. Mm-hmm. So in the first half, as we discussed, you're more insulin sensitive because of estrogen, right? It's one of the reasons women gain weight in in menopause is because our estrogen drops. And so we actually become more insulin resistant because of those hormones dropping as Mm -hmm. we age. So in the, when you're, if you're a cycling woman in the first half of your cycle, that's a really great time to fast, to go lower carb, to do some carnivore days. And so what I usually do, because I have, you know, we have over a hundred members in the group in the one membership group that I have, you can't, I can't, I don't know where everybody is in their cycle. So what I do is, is I tell them, you know, either you can use, you can on your own use more fasting days in the beginning half of your cycle, and then not fast as much in the second half. Um, or, but what I do is I just space it out throughout the week. So it's always changing. So some days, some weeks, it'll be three days carnivore. And then I'll have a major carb up day where it's, you know, 150 grams of carbs, we up the calories. So you just signal to the system like, hey, we just had this low calorie, no carb carnivore time. Burn nose, up those, to tail. Nose, nose to tail, to tail nose to tail, nose to tail, or some, some, some of your supplements, <laughs> either way. 
And then we fill them with always paleo based because no matter what I do, like I, I do have some dogma there is I do think a primal based diet by far is the best. And so we, we put in all, you know, sweet potato, potato, fruits, vegetables, root vegetables. We, we bring it all in and then there'll be days where we'll do maybe a carb up dinner, but we'll fast for the day you know, but we'll have a heavy carb dinner. And so we'll drop the calories to like 600 calories in a day. But then the next day we go up to 1800 calories. So when you look at it in a week's time span, we're in a caloric deficit, but we're not messing effing with the freaking hormonal system because we're signaling to our body. There's lots of food around. So you can do this on a weekly, you can do it monthly so that the first half you are doing low carb carnivore. And then the second half you're doing a paleo based diet where you're not fasting at all. And you're bringing in the carbohydrates so that helps with the serotonin levels and goes with the cravings of the month. Right. And then you can also do it seasonally. So, you know, obviously we eat more of the carbs in the summer and then in the winter we can drop down and do more of a ketogenic diet with less carb up days. And I think that cycling makes sense evolutionarily. And I, I would love does, to hear, yeah. um, selfishly, I would love to hear what happens in your group if they include more stearic acid and less linoleic acid. Well, I... I haven't put, focused on the stearic acid because where do you say that comes from again? So it's in suet. We're going to make a supplement at Heart and Soil, which will probably yeah, be out so right I about the time. Yeah, so I definitely don't put suet in my meal plans. But you could. <laughs> but or I you could. Can use, we're going to do Firestarter, which is these, you know, kind of tallow, yeah, I like high that. stearic acid tallow tablets or capsules. Um, but you know, but it's, I do it's make it very fat. clear. No, no vegetable oils, no soybean, nothing like that is ever like, I make it very, they get food lists and it's only the good fats. Again, and then you, you could know. even think about like limiting corn and soy fed pork and chicken. Well, I say to everyone, if you can, you should always be doing grass fed. Right. Now it's hard. that it's comes hard. down to a cost thing for most people. So yeah. just yeah. eating healthy in general, even yeah. e- eating more protein is so much more expensive. So I just say, do what you can. If, if anything, go hormone and antibiotic free. If that's all you can do, yeah. that's better than nothing. I just love that metric, like the linoleic acid to stearic acid ratio. I'm so interested to see that. Play yes, out, but, I know. I then, will because I'm going to do like a, ever, since our interview, I was like, I'm going to do like a little challenge. We do these little mini challenges in the group. So I want to do like a three week carnivore, but with carb ops in it. Uh-huh. And, and then I'll, so I'll put it in there. I'll put, I'll, I'll take that into consideration when I make the meal plan. Yeah. Just get them some organs. And I mean, suet is very yeah. affordable if you can get it or if you can't get it. That's why we're making things like Firestarter. All right. So as we wrap up, I want to show some CGM stuff. Have you ever worn a CGM? No. Oh, you got it. It's really cool. Anyway, I know. I'll show people these. <laughs> so you guys can see these all in my CGM podcast, my continuous glucose monitor podcast. This is my blood sugar from May. This is honey twice a day. You can see my blood sugar goes up to about 132 in the morning and then about 124 in the morning. It comes right back down within about an hour to baseline. My baseline is very low. Uh, my hemoglobin A1C is between 4.6 and 4.8, and my average blood sugar is probably about 80 to 85 in a day um, based on this CGM. And this is after doing carbohydrates for a number of months. I'm clearly not insulin resistant at all. Now, I want to contrast that with something you might see in someone who is insulin resistant, and this is an insulin resistant CGM. This is why a CGM is really the um, the gold standard, in my opinion. You can see this person ate a meal here in the evening and look at how high. Now you have to look at the baseline. This person's baseline blood sugar is way higher than mine, way higher than mine, okay? 
person's blood sugar is way higher than mine. My blood sugar's baseline was down at 80. And on here, his, his uh, baseline blood sugar, his or her baseline blood sugar is, you know, up around 105 all the time. And you can see that if you look at the span here, their afternoon meal gives them a, like a two to three hour peak of blood sugars up there. Look at this evening meal. Look at how long the blood sugar is elevated this evening meal. That's about four hours. And this is 2.52 a.m. is where it cuts off here. This is wow. an evening meal leading to a blood sugar spike above an area under the curve. And again, you have to compare the baselines here for four and a half to five hours. Wow. This is a person, this is, I, I know the history and this person ate a, ate a vegetarian meal that had vegetable oil in it in this meal. This is exactly wow. what we're talking about here. This blood sugar is elevated um, and it is staying up. This person has, I, in my opinion, this is metabolic dysfunction. And when you eat carbohydrates in the setting of metabolic dysfunction, this is what happens to your blood sugar. This is how you know that you are insulin resistant or I should say metabolically dysfunctional. So you guys have questions about that. Look at the CGM podcast from the folks at NutriSense. It's all in there. This is, you cannot lie with this. And I want to show one more thing, which is the way that a CGM looked on someone who had been eating a ketogenic diet for five years. And look at the baseline here, you guys. The baseline is 100. This person's blood sugar is between 100 and 130 all day. Their baseline is probably around 110 or 115. Their fasting blood sugar in the morning, when they wake up, their fasting blood sugar was 120 plus right? So you can see this is their overnight blood sugar. This is their blood sugars during the day. Their blood sugar never drops below hundred the whole day. This is what we call, uh, this is too much low carb. This is physiologic insulin resistance that is taken to a whole new level. And if you're worried about glycation, if you're worried about advanced glycation end products, I think that a lot of that happens endogenously, but that person is going to have a very high hemoglobin A1C on the order of six plus on a zero carb diet. So that's where zero carb goes all wrong in terms of mm -hmm. blood sugar. And that's a real problem. So anyway, I just wanted yeah. to show those. And then you could become very mm -hmm. carb sensitive. Like it's those people that have gone keto for five plus years and that they are even a year and they start trying to add carbohydrates back in and the boom, weight gain, they don't feel good. So then they're like, no, no, I feel better on low carb. I'm like, no you've trashed your metabolism and now you have to heal it by eating carbs and slowly, like you can start with one meal a week that have carbs in it in order to start to heal that metabolic rate again and bring the temperature, body temperatures back up because it can cause serious damage. And, you know, we, again, there's going to be a podcast with Al Russ prior to this one on, on thyroid, but we're talking about here is such an interesting, it's all connected. It's all this web. And I love the idea of measuring body temperature. And I think if more yeah. people, I'm so on, big on that, on, you are, it's awesome oh, on low carb huge. diets did this, they would see the difference. They would see that their they, body temp goes down yeah. and that, you know, who knows if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but you could make an argument that that's maybe not a good thing because mm -hmm. it's indicating that your body's kind of shutting down and becoming less fertile and using more reverse T3 if you guys listen to the one with L. Russ. So, yeah, yeah. And, and I had so, that issue too with the reverse T3 went too high and my, and I even measured my T3 levels uh, prior to doing a very low, like it was a low calorie, low carb diet. And then I did uh, just over three weeks of that and then tested again and my T3 went down. 
And I didn't feel good. It wasn't because I was utilizing my T3 better. It was, I didn't, I went to hypo. I was not feeling good. Yeah. And I, I think that we always say in medical school, don't treat the labs, treat the patient. But exactly. if the yeah. labs look bad and the patient doesn't feel good, don't ignore the labs. No. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's great. Um, I've got a I've got to run so we can wrap this up. We'll have to do a part two at some point soon. Um, but I think we covered a lot about uh, your story, about how hormones are tied into this, the pitfalls here, how to think about this, some of my ideas about it, some of your ideas about it. And then I think we at the end, we gave people a little bit of a perspective on how to start to um, rehabilitate when these things get totally out of whack. Um, anything you want to add as we wrap up here to kind of tie it in a bow? Um, you know, we didn't really get into the whole perimenopause stuff and the hormones there when we actually start depleting our systems of hormones and what that can do to your insulin and everything, blood sugars and stuff like that. So we will have to talk about that again, but for those listening, you guys want more information. I've got my own podcast that Paul was just on the other side of weight loss. And you can start with taking a quiz on my website, uh, karenmartel.com. And it's a very comprehensive hormone quiz to help you to kind of start seeing what hormones could be stopping you from losing weight because of the imbalance. So it's a good place to start. Did our podcast come out yet? No, not yet. Oh, September. It's coming out. Okay. September. It's coming yeah. out soon. Hopefully by the time this one's out, our podcast will be out, you guys. So you can listen yeah, to- Yeah, it'll be good to come you can listen together. To one of those conversations. Okay. So that's yeah. where people can find you. All right. What is the most radical thing that you have done recently? I, well, it's not radical. It's so cool. And I was just on vacation and we climbed down into this gully and found the, the most amazing hot springs, like unbelievable and sat in the ground in this boiling hot water amongst all the trees and in the forest. And it was spectacular. It was one of the nicest things I've done in so long. So where was this? My... You don't have to tell us the exact location, but yeah, I'd have to kill you to tell you. No, it in <laughs> it's in, in it's in Canada, the West Kootenays, and it was called Halfway Hot Springs. Halfway Hot Springs. Well, if anyone listening to this podcast is dedicated enough to go there, they've earned it. But that's yeah. amazing. <laughs> and you live up in the Kootenays, right? No, I live in the interior, but okay. yeah, close, four hours from there. Yeah, yeah. Every time we talk, I'm always jealous of your actual real wood log cabin background. Eventually, yeah. <laughs> you guys, I'm going to get a cool log cabin, and that's going to be like my background. So I'm aspiring to that. But yeah, we'll have to do a part two on perimenopause. Just, I mean, any quick thoughts on menopausal stuff, perimenopause, perimenopausal stuff for women? Because I feel like that always gets left out. It, it does. And it's, women are not being treated properly when it comes to perimenopause. We're not being given the right information. And women are made to suffer for sometimes, I mean, perimenopause can last up to 10 years. On average, it's eight years. And you, women feel like they're losing their minds. They have, you know, constant hot flashes. They all gain weight. And the doctor's giving them the antidepressant, telling them to work out more, telling them to suck it up buttercup and, you know, not in those words. But that's the, the consensus right now is this is just what you have to go through. You just got to get past it. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. I just want all of your listeners to know you do not have to suffer with any symptoms of perimenopause and menopause. There is way, there is definitely a way to treat it safely without harming the system and actually to help you prevent every major killer of women when you replace your hormones properly. So it's more, it's like a bioidentical replacement strategy. Yes. Yeah. 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 
And of in, course, food, everything else, that, in the lifestyle, a, food, yes, in the diet. setting of all yeah. of that. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't work very well if you don't have all those things no, together. No, absolutely. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Okay, cool. So we'll, we'll come back and talk more about that. Thank you so much for coming on. Okay, thanks. I Paul. look forward to it. All right, you guys, this is the post podcast. This is the outro. It's where I get to talk about whatever I want, riff. Thank you to my sponsors. Check out Hard and Soil. This is such a fun project. So excited that you guys are enjoying, appreciating what we're doing. It's awesome that this this passion business that I've built allows me to spend time answering your questions. It's so cool to see your responses. I really feel like I'm making a difference here and that we are cultivating a big, deep remembering, which is what it's all about. And we are helping all of us reclaim our ancestral birthright. So check us out, heartandsoil.co. If you have gotten our products and you love them, leave us a review on Amazon. Oh my goodness, I would so appreciate that. It helps us reach more people, just like when you leave a review for this podcast. So my other sponsors, White Oak Pastures, Blue Blocks, blublox.com, bellcampo.com, nutrisense.io, and forceofnature.com. Appreciate them all. The weather has turned a little cooler here in Texas. I've been out shooting the bow every day. Been doing the Pavel Sasulin Grease in the Groove, which is multiple mini workouts a day to work on my pull-ups and to shoot the bow multiple times a day. So I'm shooting my bow five or six times a day, getting ready for opening of the season uh, for Whitetail, which is October the 3rd. I'll be out there hunting in a few weeks on the weekend, respectfully trying to remember, do my own remembering. So that's been super fun, enjoying it. The mosquitoes are horrible, but it makes me tougher. Um, I need some David Goggins mentality with regard to mosquitoes, I guess. But send me an email, drpaul, drpaul, hardandsoil.co. If you have questions, I love answering them. If you want to hear people on the podcast, hope you like this one with Karen. Let me know what I'm doing good. Let me know what I can do better. Uh, The newsletter at Hard and Soil, we send it out every Sunday. Um, And I think next week is going to be a podcast with Chris Noby on polyunsaturated fats. I'm going to do some in the future on histamine and anemia because we have histamine and immune and blood builder coming out in the very near future. So that is what is up with me. I'm going to do a little Cabela's field trip later today. Uh, it's so funny because I walk around Austin now. Every once in a while I go to the grocery store. Mostly I get all my meat from Belcampo and White Oak, but occasionally I go to the grocery store. And <clears throat> it's really funny because the last times I go, people always recognize me and they go, hey, you're the carnivore guy. It's so weird that people know who I am in Austin. It doesn't happen much, but it happens occasionally. It makes me think this is so strange. But I always give them a fist bump or a high five or a hug because coronavirus is silly. And um, it's good to meet you guys. So if you're in Austin, downtown Whole Foods, you might see me there. It's pretty rare, but you might. It's more likely you'll see me shooting my bow in my backyard or over at Redbud Isle. Ooh, I just gave away a secret. I love Redbud Isle in Austin, you guys. Um, Don't tell anybody, but you might see me there. Anyway, hope you guys are doing good. Get in the sun. Go be in nature. Be barefoot. Be active. Eat what your ancestors ate. Be a part of the remembering. Thank you for being a part of the remembering. Let us all shed the collective amnesia of 2020. Love you all. Stay radical. Until next week. Oh, on Fridays, I release my Controversial Thoughts podcast. So until Friday, Friday's Controversial Thoughts. This is Tuesday for the main podcast. Two a week. Love you all. Later. Later.